Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Glad that you're here. We're at that point in the service where we are going to reflect on God's Word. We are about to begin the vision series from the book of First Peter, the first letter Peter wrote to the exiles in Asia Minor. And here to read the scripture for this morning is Hannah. Today's scripture reading for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. These words are the words of the Apostle Peter at the end of this letter. The great New Testament scholar Karen Jobes says wisely that those words are a great summary of the whole letter. I will repeat it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. If I were asked to write to you one sentence that would be your charge from me for the rest of our lives together, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. As we begin a new semester in the life of the church, we start this vision series that helps us to focus on the things that are primary, the things that are foundational, the things that Peter says are most important. This week, we want to focus on Peter's vision of a resilient church, a church that stands firm despite hostilities, temptations, and trials. This letter was probably written to Jewish Christians 
who had fled Rome. They had become Christians in Rome, congregated in Rome, and then gotten in trouble in Rome. History tells us that around AD 48 or 50, somewhere in that period, the Emperor Claudius expelled a bunch of Jewish people who were creating disturbances by their following of a man named Crestus, which is a Roman way of saying Christ. They were probably converting people. And while Claudius, as an emperor, was tolerant of the Jewish religion, he was not tolerant of any religion that converted anyone from their faith to another. And that's what Christians did. That's what Christians do. So these Jewish Christians were physically exiled to the backwater villages and towns of Asia Minor, clearly the backwater of Rome, and the people in those villages knew why they were there. Here are the troublemakers expelled from Rome in our town because they're Christians. So not only were they physically exiled, they were socially and culturally despised in their new places of residence. They were exiles in their exile. And we need to ask the question that Peter wants them to ask. What do we do in light of this hostile culture that marginalizes us? We need to ask that question too. We need to hear this. Too many of us who call ourselves Christians are living as if this world is our home, that this world is truly our home. Because what Peter wants to say to them and what he wants to say to you and me is it is not our home. You feel like exiles because in the most profound way you are exiles. When we consider this world to be too much our home, we get casual about our Christianity. We think of Christianity like we think of many other parts of our life. It's like our social life, our recreational life, our workout life. It's part of our life, something we work on when we have time, when it fits into our schedule, when other priorities don't crowd us out. So we go to the church that fits our lifestyle interests and demographics. We attend and get involved at the level that fits our station in life or season of time, as school and work and hobbies and kids allow us. It fits into our life, but it is not our life. It is not central and defining to us. It's not our foundation. We call ourselves Christians, but we look nothing like the Christians looked like in this day when this was written by Peter. Nothing like what Christians have looked like throughout most of history. And so when trials arise, temptations arise, the hostility of the culture arises, we're not prepared to resist the surging tide of skepticism and the storms that they bring. This summer, my wife and I spent a few days on a cottage in Lake Erie given to us by a family member. And while we were at the cottage, we noticed that there was brand new storm walls or sea walls built at the cottage. We asked why. Well, it turns out that Lake Erie has a problem or it has a characteristic. Wind surges, storms come roaring through and the sea rises, swamps the properties, carries off the tables and the chairs or anything else on it and floods the homes. Paul is saying to his readers and to us, that's what life does, unless you build storm walls to protect yourself. 
And here he gives us four foundation stones for a storm wall, a sea wall against the temptations and trials of this world. And here they are. Recognize your identity. We are exiles. Rejoice in your salvation. It is glorious. Reframe your trials. They are servants. Reprioritize your faith. It is central. Recognize, rejoice, reframe, reprioritize. Let's look at those. Firstly, recognize your identity. We are exiles. Peter takes the first two verses in his greeting to say something which is incredibly profound. He calls them egg, uh, sorry, he calls them elect exiles. That is spiritual language describing a spiritual identity. They are spiritually speaking not at home in this world, as we are not at home. Not only that, but their exile has a purpose. See the opening verses. He says, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There is a purpose for this spiritual exile that we've been given. It's for our sanctification. It's for our obedience to Jesus Christ. It is for our spiritual growth and maturity. God has planned, men and women, for you and I to have an identity as not at home in this world, exiles here, strangers and aliens for our good, our growth, our maturity. There it is. When I was a skeptic, I remember being nervous about becoming a Christian because I felt, well, I felt the world would change its view of me if I told them I was a Christian. I thought I'd be more hostile, less friendly. I thought Jesus really was God. I'd done the historical evidence search and felt he'd risen from the dead, but I didn't like the significance of what it would mean to be a Christian. I felt the world would no longer feel like home. And that's exactly what happened. When I went home, those early years to family reunions, there was a tension. When I went to pubs with my classmates, there was a tension. Usually about third beer in, in the pub, or second or third glass of wine at home, the problem would arise, my new faith. I was no longer home at home. I was no longer home at school. And I need to tell you, if you're here and you are investigating Christianity, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is what happens. The world has an inborn hostility to Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, verse 18, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And if you're a Christian and you're here today, I will not sugarcoat it either. You cannot follow Christ and try to avoid this identity. You cannot follow Christ and make this world your primary home. Friendship with the world is hostility with God, says the Apostle James. You cannot be lukewarm on this. You must choose today, now, and every day, and every now. 
To follow Jesus is to follow a rejected Savior who was crucified by the world. There is no other Savior given to us. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up this cross daily, and follow me. Do you want to follow Jesus? You follow a rejected Savior who calls you to take up your cross, which in that culture meant let the world know that you follow a rejected criminal, right? Taking up a cross, putting it on your back, meant telling the Roman world that you'd been convicted of a crime worthy of death and could be treated that way. That's the Jesus we encounter and none other. Now I say to you, there's a reason why I hesitated before I became a Christian, because no rational person willingly pays this kind of price willingly enters into this kind of exile, social and cultural hostility, unless the thing that you get is worth the price you pay. And for some of us, this is just where the problem lies. We don't like exile. We don't like taking up our cross daily. Peter, of all people, knows exactly how we feel, doesn't he? You remember Peter? You remember when Jesus was being tried Peter found himself at a fire surrounded by strangers because he didn't want to be with the people of God, trying to become anonymous. They recognized him while he's warming himself. They challenged him, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And three times Peter looked at them and looked at the question of being considered an exile, and he blinked. The cost was too high, so he denied Jesus three times. He wanted to follow Jesus into a life of ease, not exile. A life of comfort, not conflict. A life of respect, not rejection. And so do I, and so do you. But something changed for Peter, because not long afterwards, Weeks only afterwards, suddenly Peter stood up in front of thousands of people at Pentecost celebration in Jerusalem and said these words. Men of Israel, hear these words now. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen to those words. Listen to the courage to look exile in the teeth and say, he's worth it. What had happened to Peter that made becoming an exile something to be embraced? The second truth, the truth that he then goes to, the glory of our salvation that he calls us to rejoice in. And so we come to our second point. Embrace your exile. Rejoice in the glory of your salvation. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
I'll stop there. This is one of the most concise and precious summaries of the gospel in all of the New Testament. And it is so filled with gold, we want to unpack it a little bit. So let's do that very quickly. Firstly, look at the motivation of why God gave us this glorious salvation. Because there's glory in the motivation. It says, according to his great mercy... Why did God save us? Was, was he some kind of helicopter God thinking through what we wanted and then going and just activating on what we wanted? No. God is no helicopter God. He did not save us because he saw us wanting to choose him. He saved us according to his great mercy. He chose us simply for that reason. Because the depth of his love, the height of his compassion was too strong for him to do nothing for us while we were in the misery of our own sin and rebellion. His heart beat with divine, pure love for us and no other reason. Nothing in us, men and women, nothing in us, young men and women, nothing in us deserves his love. Nothing. When we stand before God and we try to present to him all the good things that we have done, We're going to be like that friend of mine who went to a party I went to many years ago. It was a party to celebrate a birthday, and he had a fancy bottle of wine, or so he thought, and it had aged for well over a decade, and so he brought it as a special gift to the birthday boy. And then he presented it and explained how good it was and how long he'd let it age, and now it was a special gift. Let me show you what I have. And then we opened it. I don't know hardly anything about wine, but what I do know about wine is this wine had grown sour. Apparently that happens to wines that aren't of a certain quality. And we all tried it and then politely kind of, uh, and then we all, he put it down. And the guy who brought it said, I'm sorry. I now realize this wine is not as good as I thought it was. Men and women, when you present your works to an infinitely holy God, he and you will see the embedded selfishness that wanted someone to notice, the embedded grumping about having to do it, the embedded little sins that corrupt those works and make them like filthy rags. And Peter knows this. Because Peter had to face Jesus again after Jesus had died and risen again. And he had to look Jesus in the eye knowing that he had denied him. After all of his big words and following him for years, Peter knew that he had nothing to deserve God's love. And yet the Jesus he met in the greatness of his mercy restored him, forgave him, said, feed my lambs, brought him back into leadership. Because that's the kind of heart God has for us. What a glorious motivation. According to the depths of my love. That's his motivation. Now what did he do? He has caused us to be born again. Why did he do it? Because of the depths of his love. What did he do? He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Men and women, I I don't know how to describe this well. To be born again is the words that Jesus used in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. You must be born again. 
It means that when you become a Christian, you get a whole new life. You get a whole new set of motivations, a whole new set of desires, a whole new set of values. The things that used to capture your attention don't capture it anymore. You want to love people rather than use them. I remember the week after I had become a Christian, I decided to go for it. And so I went and met someone, and, and he walked me through Ephesians 2 and how to just pray by faith to receive Jesus' forgiveness and to receive the Holy Spirit. So I did. I prayed, and it felt emotional. And then I walked away and said, this is just an emotional moment. I'm a logical guy. This didn't take. That was a Tuesday. Friday night, normally on Friday night, I'm busy getting wasted and hanging out with my friends and competing with them for the prettiest girls to dance with or whatever. This Friday night, I'm calling up the people I know who are Christian and going, can I go to church with you? Like, what the heck? What the heck just happened to me? Somewhere between Tuesday and Friday, it dawned on me, there's a whole new me with a whole new set of operating principles and desires. The things that I needed to do on a Friday night, I didn't need to do anymore because I was finding my needs met in the one who loved me according to his great mercy and had made me new. But he's born you again to a living hope, men and women, a living hope. You know what that is? Scholars aren't sure, but I think the best way to understand it is Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is alive, and he is living, and he is your hope because he promises that he is going to come back and bring you to himself. And in his forgiveness, you stand greatly free and right before God. There you go. Why did God do it? Because of his great mercy. What did he do? He caused you to be born again to a living hope. Finally, how did he do it? It says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, that's a short form for the whole act of Jesus giving his life, dying, and rising for you. You know how he did it? He asked his son to leave his home in eternal ease and joy at the right hand of the Father and come down in exile to this broken, sinful, dark, selfish, filled world. And Jesus did that and then willingly, joyfully went to the cross to pay for our sins for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And then raised from the dead so that we who are stuck in this world could have another home to look forward to. We could relocate our hope from this world to his world, his home, heaven. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' resurrection did not just prove that he was who he said he was. It did. He is who he said he was. But his resurrection meant that we, his followers, united to him, will rise with him to an eternal home. And according to these verses, that's permanent. Because the next verse says that that promise of an eternal home is an inheritance waiting for us. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it says right here. 
Three words. I don't know if you were here last week. If you were here last week, you would remember that when Jewish people want to emphasize something, they repeat it. To emphasize it to the highest degree, they repeat it three times. Here are three synonyms that make the same thing. I think Peter is repeating this to the highest degree and giving texture to it by using different words. Imperishable. You can never lose it. It will never die. Unfading. It won't ever diminish in its beauty and its taste and its glory. Undefiled. It will never be sullied or lose its value. Rejoice in the glorious motivation of God who freely and unconditionally loved you out of the depth of his mercy. Rejoice in the unbelievable gift of being born again to new life, having all your sins forgiven. Rejoice in the inheritance you've been given, this living hope that is going to be yours. You will get to be home forever in eternal communion with the living God. God saved us sovereignly by his own greatness and love and mercy. God saved us sovereignly by his son dying for us. God guards that salvation sovereignly by his spirit keeping it for us. All of salvation, men and women, is of grace. All of salvation is the gift of God. What glory. Implications. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, first implication is for you. Becoming a Christian is no easy choice. I won't deceive you. You shall face trials, but I submit to you, it is the only rational choice before you. If history proves Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he said he is. The God of the universe become human, and you need to acknowledge it as a rational choice. Is it difficult? Yes, but life is filled with difficult choices. And I need to say, this may be one of the costliest decisions you would ever make, but it is the most transformative because it will birth you to a new life and eternal communion with God. Now, if you're here and you are a Christian, I need to say to you that being a Christian is no easy choice. But the God who chose you and the God who died for you and rose for you and sent a spirit in to live in you and guard you. That God is worthy of all praise and glory and honor, for he has poured out infinite love, infinite mercy, infinite grace to you, and you have received eternal life, an eternal inheritance, eternal joy. Peter ends this part of the passage with saying, in this you greatly rejoice. Do you want to be resilient? Then rejoice at the glory of your salvation. Realize your identity as an exile. Rejoice in the greater glory of your salvation. Peter doesn't stop there, though. Peter says, thirdly, a resilient church reframes sufferings in light of this truth. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Here, Peter reframes suffering into something beautiful and meaningful. He does not love suffering. He says you are allowed to be grieved by various trials. Various trials probably means the particular trials of enduring hostility as a Christian and the general trials of living in a broken world. 
But Peter says, there is a reason for these trials. So that the tested reality or genuineness of your faith may be revealed. That faith, he says, is more precious than gold. It will be tested and by fire and refined like gold, but unlike gold, it never perishes. Refined and revealed by trials. That is what they do. Faith lasts forever. And in that forever, your faith will redound to the glory and praise and honor of the God who saved you and gave that faith to you. That's beautiful in the eyes of God. A faith that is refined by trials and revealed to be genuine is something God glories in. Peter says, faith is, I don't see him, but I love him. That's all faith is. Faith doesn't have to see. It loves from the heart. It loves what it cannot see, feel, and touch. And there's a tangible result, though, inside of us. It says we rejoice with a joy inexpressible. Do you hear that? You know what he's saying? He's saying here, he's saying that we will not only give glory to God by the genuineness of our faith, it will rebound to glory inside of us. We will be joyful in the midst of these trials. You see, we become obedient to Jesus by having the tested outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls revealed. We follow him on the road of suffering to the destiny of glory. This is the pattern of, Jesus, of the Christian life, men and women, to follow Jesus. First he suffered, then he was glorified. And he says to you, the route to glory inside of you and to God is through the route of suffering. And there is no other road. It is the only way. Implications. First implication. This is a big one. Strap in. Trials and sufferings are servants, not masters. God allows them because they serve to refine and refuel your faith. But our culture doesn't understand it that way. You see, our culture has adopted as its governing principle the words that Jean-Paul Sartre put into one of his characters in his play, No Exit. And that is these words, you are your life and nothing else. If your life is all you are and this world is all there is, then suffering is an unspeakable tragedy and nothing else. And there is no other rational response to it but the response our culture presently gives to suffering. Intense frustration, anger, self-pity, and trauma. We give, tri- we give trials and suffering so much power over us in our culture. They become meaningless masters that break our sense of equilibrium and joy. But, If your life is eternal, and this life is just a prequel to this great inheritance, the forever life of blessed, perfect joy, then trials are reframed. They have no power to define us. They have no power to defeat us. In fact, God redeems them and makes them trophy cases to display his glory and prove the genuineness of our faith. They're not our masters. They're our servants. I met with a Christian leader this week 
He had a traumatic and abusive past. We talked about the present culture we have and how much in our culture suffering and trauma is presently being allowed to shape how people see themselves and how people act. He said, wait, but this is too much power that trauma has over me if I do that. He referred to his own terrible fast and said, if I gave trauma that much power over me, it would still rule my life. I would not be free. But Jesus said, I am free, and I don't have to live there anymore. He's right. Trauma haunts many of us, but it need not master us. Because trials are our servants sent to refine and reveal our faith, not our masters meant to reshape us and change our identity. Second implication. Your ability to reframe suffering and trials reveals much about the quality and maturity of your Christian faith. This is a litmus test for you. When you are going through trials and suffering, do you go to God with it, confident that he will pull you through? Or do you get overcome with anxiety and begin to self-pity and anger rising up in you and you you begin to self-medicate? What increases when you face trials? Prayer and the reading of God's word and the meditating upon it? Or medication on social media and Netflix? When you go to others with your trials, do you go to wise people who can help you reframe the suffering as a part of the redemptive purposes of God in you? Or do you go to a sympathetic ear that allows you to wallow in the unfairness of your victimhood? Do you prefer victimhood or the path, the hard path to freedom? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. They are not meant to master you and define you, these trials, these sufferings, this trauma. They are meant to mature you as you go to God with them. Final implication, you prepare for trials before they happen, by meditating on the glory of your salvation, you build a seawall so that when the surge comes, you are spiritually ready for it. Recognize your identity. Your exiles embrace that. Rejoice in the glory of your salvation. You've been born again to a living hope. Embrace that. Reframe your sufferings. They are your servants to refine and reveal your faith. Embrace that. Finally, last point. Peter says, reprioritize your faith. Look at, look at the last chapter, the last part of this here. He goes back to salvation after talking about trials. Concerning this salvation, hmm, he's never actually stopped talking about salvation. You see, the trials were just part of salvation. But he goes back and talks about the greatness of this salvation, and he says this. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Jesus and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves but you. What? You, 
God bent all of history to point to Jesus. All the prophecies point to Jesus. God's Spirit helped all the prophets inquire carefully so they would know what they were talking about and say it properly so we would have a historical faithful record of the fact that all of history points to Jesus. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Prophets from history past were guided to say exactly where history was going. Angels in heaven longed to understand exactly where history was going. Men and women, he is saying here that the gospel is so great in the eyes of God that all of history is shaped around it. It is the central fact of human history. It is the central fact of our whole purpose and existence. It is central to everything. It is the foundation stone of it all. And Peter is saying this because he knows trials tend to distract us and make ourselves the center of the universe. And he's saying, don't decenter the gospel. Make it that central in your life. It's that central in the Bible. It's the whole story of history. It should be the central identity of you. You see, the temptation for the readers is the temptation we face is that's to make Christianity a part of our life, not the whole of our life. So Sunday morning may look important, but Monday morning... Our Christianity can be on the shelf. A couple nights later, we may show up at a small group, but until then, Christianity is nicely. You see, happening, what seems to be happening all over North America is the decentralizing of the Christian faith in the life of people who claim to be Christians. And let me just choose one way that we are statistically seeing this. Statistics are coming out now that post-COVID, most churches in North America have experienced a drop in attendance of 30% or more. A variety of reasons seem to be arising for this. Some of the reasons that are surfacing is, A, people are now used to working remotely by Zoom or whatever app they're using, and it's their ideas about work and life. So they're zooming into work to get a better work-life balance, and they're starting to zoom into church sometimes to get a quote-unquote better work-life balance. Church-like work has been dialed down as less central. That dynamic exists here. Approximately 400 people tend to show up on a Sunday morning. About 500 of you watch by screen every week. We have no idea how many people that is. We do know that when Cottage Country started, we went up to 1,000. These statistics are telling. And what they're telling us is that a lot of us are consuming Christian goods and services because it's comfortable. 
these 500 screens are not people who are COVID cautious, although some of them are, and that's why we do this. For those who aren't ready to come back, who have relatives, etc. But as I talk to people time and again, you who are here and you who are watching, this is what I hear. Well, you know, having trouble with the kids' sleep schedule, so it's just easier to turn on the TV. Well, we were out a little bit late Saturday night and we knew live stream was available, so, you know, it's just easier to put the pajamas on. Well, you know, no, I don't know. That's not the Christianity that I know. That's the consumption of Christian goods and services, men and women. That's not Christianity. What Christ do we follow? Do we follow a Christ of the couch? Find him for me in Scripture, please. Because the only Jesus I see is a Christ who got off his couch from heaven, came down and exiled himself here and went to a cross and then said to us, follow me and take up your cross. You, on the live stream, get your lazy you-know-what off your couch and join Jesus if you believe in the Jesus of the cross. And you, who come here 30 minutes late because you didn't plan it well, and all these people who spent hours preparing to worship God with you, you discouraged by showing up when it was convenient for you. I don't know that Christianity either. The Christ I know came into exile and gave his life for us. What Christ do we know, men and women? We serve each other by our presence with each other. We fulfill the call of Jesus who says, do not forsake assembling together. We serve each other by letting each other see each other, worship God together by praying with each other. We serve each other by the people who show up and thank you, all of you servants who show up and serve. But men and women, we need a coffee ministry. We have so many people coming and we're just like barely getting by because the gracious people who served us doing coffee for years, it is time for them to take a break. We need people to serve, to, to read scripture, to pray, to be volunteers, to help with kids. We need to be a family who follows the Christ of the cross, not the Christ of the couch. Men and women, the time for lazy, consumeristic Christianity is done. If you have that in you, get rid of it. It is polluting you. It is killing you. It's time to take the garbage out. Repent. Reconnect. Rejoice. This is the time for us to become a resilient church.
to remember that we're always exiles, to rejoice in the greatness of our salvation, to reprioritize the glory of our faith. It always was this important and always shall be this important. Therefore, this moment, this now, it must be that central. Do you want to be a resilient church? It's time to follow the Jesus of the cross, to come together to be a family. I don't care how new you are here. You're called to make this a family. I don't care how long you've been here. It's time to serve. The glory of salvation is this. No matter what trials you are experiencing, no matter what persecution you may be feeling, the God of all creation has come down in Jesus Christ from, ex- from home to exile to bring us home. This isn't our home, but we are our family. Let's invest in the glorious gift of salvation. Men and women, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. I pray we would repent of half-hearted, consumeristic, couch-oriented Christianity. And I pray you would make us a resilient, exilic, rejoicing, prevailing church for your glory. Amen. Please stand and join us.